everybody. Thank you for joining me on another one of my LinkedIn Live. This is part of my LinkedIn Live series where we talk about important topics that I find um, exist in pharmacy. The goal of the Empowered PharmD Presents series is to inspire our pharmacists, to motivate pharmacists to go after the career that you want, to feel confident in your own practice, to know that what you do is important despite what you may feel at the moment or what others are telling you either online or in real life or even your coworkers that you work with who are experiencing that, um, you know, that uh, degree of sadness, I guess, that's in their life. Um, don't allow that to, you know, bleed into your own life. Um, so Empowered Farm D is here to help you feel more confident and as well as more positive and seeing that brighter future. Hey, Sally. <laughs> nice to see you. <laughs> um, check out our podcast. Hey, our ex-friends, we got this with Sally and I that is also available everywhere. And I'm just uh, filling in some space while we wait for others to join us. Um, letting you guys know that you can um, engage with me via the comment section. Let me know what you guys are thinking throughout this entire presentation. It is just going to be me today. I'm doing a solo episode today, which is a little bit daunting. Um, when I first thought about doing this topic, touching on microaggressions and especially looking at it from a pharmacy perspective, um, I was debating on whether I should get a guest with me to have a discussion, to maybe have a little bit of a debate. But I realized that this topic is something that's really personal to me, that I did not want it to be anything else but my own experience. Because when you talk about microaggressions, it can open up a lot of hurtful feelings. And I just want this to be something where I can really share my story. I, as you know, I love story, sh story sh sharing, <laughs> storytelling. And um, this is something that just feels right for me to do by myself. But it is extremely terrifying to have to... <laughs> be the only person given an opinion and thoughts and there's nobody else that you can kind of play off with and it's also live so I make silly goofy mistakes but uh, it's it's a really great experience to push yourself out of your comfort zone if you guys are listening and watching and um, are thinking what is there is there something that I can kind of push through um, that can allow me to come out of my comfort zone a little bit here and there. And the more you think about it, the more terrified you are. I think that's a good, uh, I think that's a good sign to jump into it and actually do it. <laughs> I hope everybody's having a great Saturday. And um, I think it is time for us to dive into hidden microaggressions in pharmacy. Okay. So let's turn off the music.
and get started. All right. So I've got my slide here with me today. And um, there's a couple of things I wanted to preface before we start with microaggressions. So I don't often talk about my race or my gender very often. And considering that I have posted about it several times, you think that that's something that I think about a lot. But I think this is something that a lot of people of color, people with immigrant experience, we don't really think about that aspect of our lives on a daily basis. We just go on about our days as everybody else. Um, and so there is a lot of that subconscious thought that goes on without us actually consciously thinking it. Um, but race and gender plays a huge part in my everyday life. It's just something that I don't think about. Um, but then last April was the first time that someone reached out to me, a student at the University of Arizona, and they had asked for me to come speak to their organization about being an Asian woman in pharmacy. And really, they just wanted to hear my story. But knowing my audience, I knew that I wanted to give them an honest thought about what it's like to be um, a pharmacist and also to be Asian and to be a woman. Because to be honest, I've never really received a very honest response from anybody that I came and talked to. So what I mean by that is I never really, I've never really seen an Asian leader in my pharmacy experience and in my 10 years of my pharmacy career so far. I cannot think of an, um, a person that is Asian that um, was in this leadership position, but that is someone that I also look up to. So it was a very rare experience um, for me and I never really got to speak to somebody that I can see myself in and have an honest conversation about what it means to be a person of color, a woman of color, trying to navigate this career. So then when students are asking me what it was like for me, I wanted to make sure that my response was accurate. So um, essentially, I did meet somebody at um, a university that I was doing my PGY2 at the time. And I believe this is what I wrote. I had said that I had the opportunity to interview the farm the pharmacy program's vice president and chief academic officer at the time. Her name hinted at an Asian background, and I was eager to meet her as it was unusual for me to meet an Asian woman in such a high leadership role. She greeted me warmly as I stepped into her prestigious office. It was a very beautiful office. She had a little secretary and everything. It was very fancy. I had a list of interview questions that I had prepared the night before, and I was really excited to ask them. And as our conversation slowed to a natural stop, I asked her my most anticipated question on that list. I asked her if race or gender had ever affected her rise to leadership. And her answer was, no, it did not affect me. And she did not expand on that. And that was the end of that conversation. So I, I still critically think about that answer. And 
sometimes I think that it's not the best answer. And so I wrote here in my little presentation back then, and I said, to be honest, this answer was a disappointing end to an otherwise wonderful and insightful conversation. Why are you being critical? That's a perfectly reasonable answer. And some of you may be thinking that. No, gender and race did not affect me. That's a reasonable answer. And I think for someone to give me that answer, I think that it might be their truth. But in my experience, in my experience in the 10 years that I've worked now as well, that I know for a fact that there are factors of race and gender that affects your career. And I've seen it. Um, I've been a clinical pharmacist for almost 10 years now. And most of that time, I was the only Asian woman sitting in the room. There were a handful of times when I had to bridge that cultural awareness and competency gap amongst my peers. And so one example stood out really clearly. During a residency selection process, one of my colleagues voiced concerns about a candidate's current living situation. In her view, an adult woman who still lives with her parents suggests codependency and immaturity that could sabotage a successful completion of a residency program. And I, being the only Asian woman in that room, had to tell her that in Asian culture, a single adult woman is often expected to live at home, and that has nothing to do with her competency or maturity. So this example to me hits me so strongly because this and so many other things that I've witnessed is why I'm very skeptical when someone tells me, no, race and gender does not affect my career in healthcare and pharmacy and whatever, it affects you. Whether you are conscious of it or not, I feel like I'm starting to get a little bit heated now. <laughs> um, but I, I, yes, I can be very critical about somebody's answer. And I, I've, I understand that there is an aspect to which I need to validate that reality for them. Yeah, maybe that person does not think that this affects them, but I have seen in my own experience that that is not true. And I don't want our pharmacy students, other pharmacists to feel invalidated if they do think that race and gender does play a role in their life. So that was kind of my response and my presentation to the University of Arizona students. And I promise I was not as heated at that time. I was just very happy to get to talk to them. But I, after that conversation back in April, I was like, okay, I think that was it. I don't think that I need to talk about race and gender anymore until this November when I um, was asked to talk about microaggressions because one of my passion at my current position right now is DEI, which if those of you who don't know, it's diversity, equity, and inclusion. And these are initiatives that the department, the company, wherever can take to improve on um, the quality of your department in those sense. And um, someone had asked, Kate Kozart, shout out to Kate. <laughs> she asked if um, I would do a presentation on microaggressions. And at first I was really, really hesitant. 
Not going to lie. One, because I just didn't think that I knew very much about microaggressions, which is not really a great you know, excuse. Like You can always learn about any topics, really, and learn them well enough to discuss them. Um, but the other reason, let me see what the other slide is. But the other reason is microaggressions is just one of those terms where you, for me, microaggressions and, and those types of terms sometimes bring on a lot of negative connotations. And let me explain. Don't freak out. Just listen. <laughs> um, I think that when you think about microaggressions, the first thing that comes to mind is race. You know, for me anyways, being an immigrant child, uh, moving from America at a young age, sometimes when I think about my experience with any form of discrimination, it brings up a lot of pain. So when, you when I have to dig deep into terms like microaggression and then apply that to my experience as somebody that experienced, you know, her handful of painful experiences, um, it's almost like opening a box that I never really want to open up or that I have to be in the right mind to open that box up. And then the other thing is that terms like this can cause a lot of friction between people. And, and I think further down the presentation, I can maybe understand why there is friction, especially in terms like microaggressions. But um, sometimes there's a lot of political stuff that gets brought up. For me, 20, the year of 2020 comes back up a lot because that was the year where we saw probably the most racial injustice and racial unrest in my lifetime that I've witnessed in my lifetime. So going back to that time where it was just really painful, I you have to be in the right mindset and you have to really be okay to receive some of this information. And I completely understand that. Trauma-wise, I get it. It's a lot of triggers for a lot of people. Why did I decide to do this topic today? Is as I went through researching microaggressions, I realized that this is beyond just a terminology, but this has so much to do with people's lives and also mental health. And if I can share the information that I have with you guys about microaggressions and how it affects you mentally as you go through your life, I think that that is a bigger deal than just teaching you this terminology and then be done with it. This has a, a huge consequence to people's mental health. And this is something that I do want to raise awareness of as well. All right. So hopefully all of that makes sense. I do see some comments in the comment section. <laughs> Go off, dude. <laughs> She's seen me gone off many, many times. So she gets it. She gets it. Bear says hi. Um, all right. So let's do this. Okay. So before we get started with all the definitions, I want to talk about first this discrimination iceberg idea. Um, and this is actually such a crucial part 
of talking about microaggressions because there is a difference between um, overt discrimination, which I think I might have misspelled discrimination. Oh, well, whatever. Um, <laughs> and covert discrimination. Ignore the iceberg at this point. All right. So overt ex ex uh, discrimination is socially unacceptable. They are visible, they are explicit, and they are illegal. Covert, on the other hand, is a lot more sneaky. It's, um, it's the type that are socially acceptable and practice on a daily basis. They are hidden, vague, and implicit. Why do you think I titled my presentation Hidden Microaggressions? You guys, I don't do things just for fun, except for misspelling words sometimes. But, you know, that's just to catch you, you know, that's just to make sure you're paying attention, basically. Um, but examples of overt discrimination includes hate crimes, blackface, sexual harassment. I mean, things that you think about when you see them that you immediately, it goes off in your, in your consciousness of this is not right. And sometimes you may need to even call the police because it's illegal. These are overt discrimination. Covert discrimination is more, um, a lot of it is microaggressions. Microaggressions exist underneath the surface. And it's stuff like um, racial profiling and ignoring pronouns, for example, for some people. Um, using a lot of assumptions and using stereotype to categorize people. So it becomes um, very vague and implicit. And I'm going to go into it even a little bit more, but it causes a lot of confusion when the victim of this kind of discrimination receive it. We don't know what to think because it's so socially acceptable and it's esteemed as a normal thing to think. So let's go over a couple of um, definitions. I want to just read off the definitions so that none of us are misunderstanding anything. So the standard definition for microaggressions is a verbal or nonverbal slight that impacts an individual who might identify as being from a marginalized or non-mainstream community. And there's been so much research done in this topic that now there are three types of microaggressions. One of them is micro, micro assault. And micro assaults, the definition for that is verbal or nonverbal attacks mean to hurt the intended victim through name calling, avoidant behavior, or purposeful discrimin discriminatory actions. So this is more deliberate and it's a more conscious type of microaggression. Hello, everybody who's joining. <laughs> um, I'm just seeing all the comments in the in the comment section. I appreciate you all. Um, I appreciate you all writing and engaging during my presentation. I love it that you're here. Thank you for joining. Okay. So examples of micro salts include, and some of it might be personal for me, and then some of it you guys might relate to as well. But micro assaults could be, you don't belong here. 
go back to where you come from. That's a very, I mean, I think a lot of people, especially people of color, immigrant people, um, we understand, we've all experienced some form of this. And it's really painful, like I've mentioned in the beginning of this. When I open this box to talk about microaggressions and applying a lot of the microaggressions to my own experience, I really had to kind of reflect on all the all the painfulness that I've experienced. So, um, and sensitive racial jokes ending with "I'm just joking" could be a micro assault, racial profiling by law enforcement. A nonverbal one might be a woman clutching her purse if she's standing in an elevator with a darker skin tone person. She's just like huddled up, acting really scared. Um, a store worker following certain people around, which is very similar to racial profiling. Even not accepting a person of color who's an Uber driver or a taxi driver, for example. Um, or using a caricature of an Asian person. For example, and I think of the movie with um, Audrey Hepburn a lot. Uh, what is that movie called? <laughs> I can't remember right now. Um, but in that movie, there was a really offensive caricature of an Asian person playing this annoying character. And it's not um, its not even an Asian person that's, that's playing the Asian character. Uh, so that's a very... That's a very annoying, um, or that's a that's definitely a microaggression, and it shows off like a version, a stereotypical version of an Asian person that a white person or somebody non-Asian may assume. Okay, so that's micro assault, micro insults. Now we're moving into the more unconscious, unintentional types of microaggressions. And these are communications that convey rudeness and ins insensitivity and demean a person's heritage, social group, or identity. So the examples might be, you don't seem gay. What does that mean exactly? You have a great fashion sense for a plus-sized girl. Again, this com these types of communications, they're very unconscious and they're unintentional, but they're also very rude and they have this type of, uh, this component of insensitivity. Um, where are you from? You're so interesting looking. Now, I, I've received that comment many times. And you know, it's one of those things where I know I don't like that comment. I know that this person doesn't is not saying it to be rude, and they're they're not saying it to actually hurt me. But for me, receiving that comment, I can I'm thinking that this person obviously like I'm I obviously stand out, and that's a huge insecurity for me, right? Um, to to be so aware that I am different than everybody else. And that people see me as different in the country that I live in is a very interesting uh, dynamic in somebody's life. Like that is such a bizarre feeling to know I see America as my country. I live here. This is my place of residence. And yet there are members in the society that knows exactly when they see me like 
where are you really from though but where but where and that's the thing is like it makes it difficult for the person receiving this comment because I know that you're not trying to be rude and I know it's, uncon um, it's an unconscious thing and it's socially accepted and yet I don't feel good about it. And so that's a very different uh, dynamic for me to exist in a place like that. And it's very hard sometimes. So Sally said, you're pretty for a dark skinned girl. That's definitely one of those micro insults. Your English is pretty good. You don't have an accent. Okay. I mean, for me, when I received that comment, I get it because um, I get it because I I moved to America when I was younger. And so I'm actually very excited and happy that my English is, <laughs> I get compliments on my English because, you know, I, I had to learn and I had to put in a lot of work to, to learn to speak the language and all of that when I was younger. But I can imagine somebody who was born in America receiving that comment wow you don't have an accent that's amazing and you're like well i i'm american i was born here like that that's really sad and very very painful for those people who receive it um tina said what kind of last name is that yeah it's like what what does that even mean all right the next group is micro invalidations communications that exclude negate or nullify this uh, psychological thoughts, feelings, or experiential reality of a person of color. So for me, this one is probably the most damaging for me and my psyche. To be invalidated in my own reality is probably the most confusing thing that a person can go through. The other word that I can think of is gaslighting, which is a huge problem that can cause a lot of psychological damage to somebody. So if I go through life and not feeling quite right about something, but then having so many people telling me, ah, you're over-exaggerating, or I think you're oversensitive, that affects me as a person. So examples of micro-validations could be you're being too sensitive at that racial joke. As a woman, I know what it's like to be a minority group. I don't see color. Um, invalidating my fears as an Asian during the pandemic for me personally, I remember telling some of my, some of the people that I knew at the time, the fear that I have with Asian hate and feeling scared to live in my own country, right? At the time, 2021, where you see a lot of that types of aggression against Asians on the news. And me as an Asian woman, I was really scared. I, I fear what might happen to my family members. You know, sometimes I imagine what it would be like to be hanging out with my mother who mostly speaks Vietnamese and then having somebody come up to us and just berate us for using the language that we commonly use between the two of us and having to think of what would I, what would my response be for that? And just living in that kind of mindset was not the healthiest, but when I voiced these fears and I voiced these concerns, there were people that, and again, in their right, in their own intention, was telling me, ah, I wouldn't worry too much about that. Or they would try to relate to me and say, 
yeah, you know, I, I grew up in, in an area where I don't look like a lot of people and I got made fun of as well. Or yeah, you know, I, I look very racially ambiguous. And so people would tell me, people would say things to me until I let them know that I'm actually white and then they'd stop. Like, I get it. I understand. And I understand why you'd be scared, but don't be scared kind of thing. And it's like when you receive these types of comments that kind of diminish, trying to diminish what you're feeling, it it just did not feel right even more. But you can't exactly pinpoint why until you really dig down into it and say, well, just because you grew up in an area where you don't look like everybody else, you still can leave that area and then fit in just like everybody else. Whereas I will always be Asian. <laughs> I don't think that that makes sense <laughs> to some people. I will always be a target of attack when it is the right time because I will not be able to change any of this. Um, but being invalidated for feeling this kind of fear can be really painful. And for me, it is the worst out of all of them because it makes me question my own reality. Okay, so I talk about this a lot and I want to emphasize again this idea of intent and impact because, you know, microaggressions are often unintentional unless it's a micro um, assault. But with micro insults and micro invalidations, these are all unintentional. And usually the, the person who's saying it does not have any harm against you. But that does not mean that the impact is not significant. So when you look at, let's say, education, there's been lots of studies showing that students who have um, experienced microaggressions tend to have decreased satisfaction with school, increased rates of transfer withdrawal, um, there's been linked to depression, anxiety, and even trauma responses, and even increased use of alcohol. If you look at our patients, for example, and a lot of microaggressions research was done um, with a you know black population uh, versus non-black, for example. And so there's been a lot of studies suggesting that microaggression can play a role in health disparities. Um, perceived discrimination is associated with hypertension. And you see this very clearly in Black and Native, Native American individuals. But if you look at, too, and I focus a lot of this topic on pharmacy education, you know, with the, even faculty members or even people in pharmacy departments, if they receive a lot of microaggressions in their workplace, they are, for example, discouraged by the lack of diversity in their work field. But also um, imagine why we say this a lot, women of color and leadership. Why don't we see more women of color in leadership? And perhaps microaggressions may play a huge role in a lot of our women um, of color pharmacists wanting to show up even more because of how much microaggressions that's been um, afflicted on us. Okay. So in terms of microaggression in healthcare and in pharmacy, there are areas that I can see 
happening very frequently and I can pinpoint exactly. So assuming of a lesser intelligence based on race, age, socioeconomics. Assuming that one's cultural background and communication styles are problematic. Nonverbal cues that make people feel unwelcomed or disrespected or undervalued. So if, um, and one thing that I do want to note is that microaggressions, do you see how many arrows there are in this picture? Microaggressions happen everywhere. We can afflict that upon our learners, upon each other, upon other healthcare providers, and upon our patients. And we all can afflict it on each other. So me, myself, I think that is, as I've reflected back on my experience, not only have I experienced microaggressions, but I have said things that can definitely qualify as microaggressions. And so I think it's really important for us to all be very aware of the, the things that we say, the bias that we have. But examples of how we can afflict some of these things would be a patient saying, I would like to speak to a real doctor, or I would like to speak to a doctor who can actually speak English. Thank you. Like, that's really, really painful, but that's existed. Um, a preceptor who may have different expectations for an Asian student compared to a another race, you know, another race of students. Um, or for my personal example, I noticed that when I put, um, and another example is for when I was um, accepting Appy students. And I'm noticing that I have a lot of other Vietnamese students on my rotation block compared to my other coworkers. And now I don't know if, if it's because other Asian students are wanting to learn from Asian preceptors or what that's about, <laughs> but I definitely notice a really big difference on that. Like the types of students that I get is not very diverse. And I'm curious if this is something that is race related or, or what? I don't know if you all have experience like that. Let me know. Um, now, another example could be, and I, I witnessed this in working with geriatric patients, is that we assume that geriatric patients can't take care of themselves, don't know anything about their medications. In some instances, that is true. But when you're talking to a group of people, um, you're talking to your patient, and then there's family members all around, and you don't even talk to your patient, you talk to the other family members, assuming that the patient does not manage any of that or understand what's going on, that could be a form of just ignoring and assuming that somebody does not have the capabilities to understand what you're saying. So these are things that we can see within our healthcare system, within each other, that can also be um, microaggressions against each other. So very important to think about. I don't know if you, any of you have any other experiences in pharmacy that could be considered microaggressions against each other. I think my other example that I have would be when um, I hear somebody talking about a group of, of pharmacy preceptors and they're telling me, well, there's a lot of estrogen in that room. So yeah, that's why there's so much drama in there. Yeah, I mean, these are all things that I've heard working in pharmacy and it's, it's painful when you think that those things are accepted and it's just allowed to be said and to be thought. Um, I think the, the last one that I wanna say would be, 
another preceptor saying something to the effect of, oh gosh, like why are those two resins, their names are too similar? And I'll just make up some names, but it, it's probably something like Yang and Trang. Like, why are they so similar? That's that's annoying. <laughs> like, these are things that I've heard working in pharmacy and nobody calls any of that out because it's like, yeah, it is really similar. But that is not for you to complain about. <laughs> like, what is that? Why do you get to say anything? Because that's just who they are. Those are their names. Those are their identities. Like, what do you mean that's annoying for you to learn? Okay. So Sally is saying it absolutely is. They spent the last few years being thought by people they do not relate to. They jump at the first opportunity to learn from someone they identify with. They're absolutely looking at you. So I think she's talking about receiving Asian students. Okay. I just wanted to double check because I'm like, wow, there's a lot of Asian students that are signing up with me. And I don't know if that's like the school doing that or the students are doing that. Okay. So maybe it's not as what I think. All right. So um, now let's move on to actual coping mechanisms because when you're talking about microaggressions, I almost feel like you cannot control what the other person is going to say to you. You're never going to, you, you're, ne you're never going to know what the next weird thing you're going to receive right? So the best thing for us to do is to really understand what microaggressions are and how to cope with it. So speaking up is an option, but before you speak up, consider whether it's worth it to even speak up. Consider your personal psychological safety. Consider if the other person is willing to have a conversation with you. Consider if you would regret if you remain silent. And I'm going to say something right now. I've received a lot of microaggressive words microaggressive words. I've experienced a lot of microaggressions in my in my lifetime. I don't choose to speak up in any of them for the most part because I don't want to put myself in that awkward situation where I have to then now have this really hard conversation. And I don't think that that's wrong. You do not have to speak up, by the way. You don't. But if you feel like you don't speak up and if that action that you've chosen is going to affect you later on or you regret that you've had to remain silent, then perhaps consider finding a way to speak up. But I just want to emphasize, like, you as a person who's been inflicted with this, you don't have to say anything. That's not your responsibility. But it is important for you to cope and learn how to cope with these types of things because as they continue to build up, mental health issues may arise from that. So other, so certain coping mechanisms can include relying on social networks. You can also use self-protective mechanisms, desensitization. Some people repress the frustrations. And again, it's, it may not be the best way to cope, and even desensitization might not be the best way to cope too, but, you know, it's a self-protective thing. Some people just pray about it. Some get sponsorship, mentoring, use self-care, and then others can get therapy for it if it's become so significant. Now, I would say for me, um, I've experienced using therapy to help me um, break down some of these things. And I would say 
therapy can be a hit or miss because if your therapist does not go through some of these, the, some of the same life experiences that you have, they may not quite understand how to help you get over the, the effects of the microaggression. And I'll give you an example. So I was in an, um, I was in a hotel room and I was, I was checking out. I, it was, this was like four or 5 AM and I get on the elevator I'm leaving and there were two people that were coming towards the elevator. They asked, they're like, oh, you know, keep the door open. But it was too late. The elevators, the elevator doors closed and it was too late. Like, oops, oh, well, I go to my car. I start my car. I don't think much of it until I'm seeing some like a shadow coming towards me. And it was the man that had decided that he was going to have words with me for some reason. This person felt strongly enough to decide that he was going to meet me in the parking lot, like stand right next to my car. For what? Because I didn't open or keep the elevator door for you? For what? Like, what do you what do you want to talk to me about? This was four or five in the morning. It's dark. It's scary. I'm in my car. Nobody else is in the parking lot. And so I did not open the door for this person. I did not to talk to this person. And I waited for them to leave and I drove off. But that experience was really, really scary. It was triggering. It was very triggering. Why did this person decide that it was okay to talk to me and what? Teach me the etiquettes of elevator door? So I didn't feel good and I didn't feel like this was like this was an appropriate experience for me. So I decided to talk to my therapist at the time about it. And we were able to to break down the idea that, yeah, I didn't feel safe, but I don't think that she quite understood the racial component of it. And I think that racial component is really important when you talk about micro microaggressions in that sense. But she she just couldn't relate to me on that level. And I I don't blame her for it. But that's that's what I mean is sometimes therapy may not even be the most effective way to cope if your therapist does not have the background of some of these more racial um, triggers. So very interesting things. I don't know if you guys also have any examples of this. Let me know. But uh, for me, self-protective mechanism for me, like I mentioned before, I put everything in this box and I store it away. I, I try not to allow it to affect me too much in my day to day. But I know it exists subconsciously and I'm aware of these things, but I try not to allow them to affect me um, in living to my biggest potential, right? Um, okay, so I don't know if this is the time to read some comments, but let's see. So sorry for the aggressions you've suffered. Others should step up for you when microaggressions happen to say that's not okay. There's always a wonderful opportunity to deploy motivational interviewing to discern the motivations of the person in front of you. You don't have to guess. That's very true. Bystander, um, you know, people who are witnessing the situation can always step in. And sometimes that's the support that the person who's dealing with the microaggression needs to feel comfortable to speak up. Because if it's just me by myself, no, I'm not going to... I'm not going to put myself in an uncomfortable situation for that one moment. Sometimes it's just not worth it. Um, Dina says, sometimes speaking up can make you feel like a target. 
Um, like 2023 being a Palestinian descent. Ooh, that's painful. I have thought about counseling, but don't know if they can understand and empathize. Yeah. Yeah, I completely know where you're coming from, Dina. I, I think that it has to be a very specialized type of therapy when you're talking about this type of fear that you're, that you're experiencing living in a place that you don't feel sometimes. It's, um, it's not an experience that just anybody can relate to. And it's not something that anybody can break down with you. It has to be somebody that has that kind of training, I think. Okay. So again, if you do want to speak up, you know, it can be very difficult because you, you get all of these like things going in your mind. Did I hear this correctly? Did they mean to say it negatively? Should I even respond? How should I respond? Am I being overly sensitive? Is it even worth the trouble? Am I making a big deal out of nothing? You play this mind game over and over and over again. And that's what makes you question yourself so much. That's what makes you unsure if what you're experiencing is actually what you're experiencing. This is why microaggression plays such a wild thing in your mind is you just, you're just, you never know what you're actually experiencing. Um, and so speaking up can be very difficult, but there are ways to speak up. Oh, I guess that was my last slide. There are ways to speak up if you feel comfortable enough. And I have felt comfortable enough. There are people in my life where I notice that this is a microaggression and I feel comfortable with them to say something. So um, there's a lot of different framework that you can use if you do feel comfortable speaking up. Oftentimes people recommend that you state what you saw. So I noticed this, I think this, I feel this, and then I would like. So that's kind of the last sentence that you say is, this is how we would like to move forward. So if a friend of mine says, you're pretty for an Asian, I would say, I noticed that you said I was pretty for an Asian. I think that when you say something like that, it makes me think that you don't believe Asian people are beautiful in their own way. And I feel, um, I feel sad that there might be some sort of bias that you have against my my country or like against my race <laughs> and i would like for us to perhaps talk about that a little bit more and try to understand each other from there and that could be something that i potentially would go and talk to somebody about last time i talked i had this conversation about microaggressions somebody mentioned that one of their patients would say wow my blood pressure is high because you're such a beautiful doctor to her. And she did not feel comfortable hearing that. And so something that she could say is, I noticed that you called me beautiful. I think that that's an inappropriate um, description to use for somebody who is your doctor in this relationship that's supposed to be professional. I feel uncomfortable hearing you say that to me. And moving forward, I really want to keep our profession, our relationship professional to maintain um, a degree in which I can feel comfortable 
helping you get better and leaving everything else out the out the office. Now, here's the thing. Not all of it's going to be effective just because this is a way to say something you're in that moment. You're not going to be able to think, okay, this step, this step, and this step. But most of the time, the point is, I feel X when you say this because of this and really expressing, you know, your thoughts. But it's it's not always easy and um, it's uh, something that may require practice if if you feel comfortable saying it. That doctor with that patient, she may not even need to say anything. She could just go to her manager and say, listen, I don't feel comfortable with this patient. Could you could you have them see somebody else next time? Or tell the patient, you're going to have to see somebody else. Um, yeah, but you don't have to speak up. That's that's the point. Okay. I see here, it isn't the victim's responsibility to educate individuals, but all voices and lived experiences uh, must inform education from primary school through to the way we train healthcare professionals. Yeah, I don't think it's the victim's responsibility to educate individuals either. And if you don't feel comfortable, then don't. Um, and it, it is, you know, important for our society to acknowledge that some of these comments can be very hurtful and to learn to reflect upon ourselves and see how we can minimize this as much as possible. But at the same time, you know, victims the people who experience microaggressions, it's it's good to realize that there are ways to also step up and say something if you can, if you feel comfortable, and um, that you're not alone in this, and that there are other people experiencing it, and there's actually research that's been done about this as well. Um, okay, so I think that's the end of my presentations on microaggressions. And um, I, I appreciate everybody who was able to comment and engage during this time. I, the goal here really is to allow people to understand what that looks like, what microaggression may look like for you, and how maybe you are perpetuating some of the microaggressions yourself, which, by the way, I mentioned it is a very unintentional thing, and oftentimes it's done with good intention. You want to know where people are from. Um, but I think it's a, it's our responsibility for any of you guys who are listening to me today to look within yourself and see how am I perpetuating this, this issue? And then where have I experienced this myself? Because I know I talk a lot about race and gender in this topic, but it it's um it's something that can occur in so many different facets in life. You know, whether you have some sort of disability, even your sexual orientation now can be a target for so many types of discrimination. Um, and so just kind of think about that and think of ways that you are coping. And if you're recognizing that maybe microaggressions is playing a bigger role in your own mental health, let's say that you are always kind of questioning yourself. You're thinking that, you know, you're always just like, is that is that right that I think that? Is that okay if I think that? Was that okay? Was that right? If you're always questioning yourself, perhaps microaggressions is playing a big role in your life. Of You're just so used to 
rationalizes everybody else's behavior that you're not really recognizing your own. Um, and that's something that I've had to really come to terms with. Um, sometimes it surprises the aggressor and puts them in the spot to learn their bias. Yeah, that's very true. Um, and that's what Nisha is saying. Yes, you if you have the the ability to speak up, then yes. And I think it's a great way to practice being assertive and, and standing up for yourself as well. But if, again, if you are an Asian woman that's in a parking lot by yourself with somebody who's behaving kind of irrationally, no, you should leave. So it's really about safety as well. If you feel comfortable, if you're in a situation where you do have that power, let's say that you are the provider talking to a patient. So there is a little bit of that power dynamic and you feel comfortable saying something to that patient then please do because that patient may accept it or maybe your relationship is strong enough that you feel like that patient is going to take your recommendations to heart and not take it so defensively. Yeah, definitely. But again, reflect on that surrounding. Think about, is it worth this? Is it worth me putting myself in even more of a target? Because some people may get very defensive and that microaggressions may become true aggression. So you never know. And I think being someone that's, you know, again, afraid to live <laughs> in the country that I live sometimes, not, not always, very rarely do I feel fear, to be honest with you. I'm not going to say like, I'm always scared, but there are moments where I am scared. And there are moments where I'm going to protect myself first before having to say anything. Um, okay. Well, that is it for today. And I hope that you guys learn from, from me or, or at least, um, learn something new. And I hope that I was able to describe this phenomenon in, in a way that you can relate to. Um, I want to also emphasize that this is something that we should all work on in ourselves and not necessarily expect others to always be so aware, right? Like we can be self-aware so we can minimize our own microaggression behaviors. Um, but we shouldn't be always expecting everybody to be like us. And so when we do experience microaggressions, for me, and this is just a personal thought, that learning to cope with it as well is just as important as learning to you know speak up um so in any case if you all have any other questions for me that'd be uh put it down in the comments that's great for us to communicate and talk about it some more um this episode is going to be available to watch again um post live so if you didn't catch the beginning of it please go back and watch it and it's also going to be available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other places like that as well. But I hope you have a great Sunday. Or no, it's Saturday today. I hope you have a great weekend. I'm um, glad that I was able to do something that's different today, to do an episode all on my own. I'm not going to lie. It was very scary. And I'm not going to lie, I have self-doubt the entire time that I did this episode today. But with you engaging with me in the comment section, it makes me feel like 
I'm actually interacting with people and it makes me feel like I'm not by myself talking to myself. Um, it gives me a little bit more confidence. So with that said, do something that's going to be outside of your comfort zone today, this weekend, this month, whatever it might be. I encourage you all to do it. And until next time, talk to you later. Bye, everybody.